hearing somebody use a tone and language choice that takes me back to a place that was unsafe. It's very different than I'm feeling really horrible about this and I don't know what to do. Those are very legitimate feelings and they're feelings that should be acknowledged and worked through. And you can't acknowledge and work through it if you don't stay in that discomfort. ADHD Rewired, episode 216. This is the show designed for those of us with really good intentions, but a slightly wandering attention. My name is Eric Tivers. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, coach, and speaker. The website is ADHDrewired.com. We know that starting is the hardest part, so let's get started. But first, let me tell you about this. I heard your your sappy violin playing the testimonials, and I was like, oh my God, bawling as I'm driving and in traffic going, that's so me. I'm, my name is Kate. I joined this group because I felt stuck for a lot of years. I knew I was capable of so much more. I knew I was in the right place during the registration interview when Eric said to me, we're going to get you outside of your box. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what I need. And that is truly what's happened in many ways. I joined this group at a time in my life when I was feeling super stuck. I was unemployed and had been for a while. I found out about this group through How to ADHD, and by the time I spoke to Eric on the phone, I had pretty much already decided that this was the group for me. So I was really happy when he said that I'd be a great fit. And for the first time in my life, I'm really actually planning for the future. I am now planning regularly. I've learned to set boundaries on my time. I find myself communicating with more people about my ADHD and owning it. I have to say that I learned so much and it changed my life a lot. I absolutely feel that I'm procrastinating less. One way I changed is I believed in myself more and my capabilities. Now I plan every day. I try something new every day to improve how I plan. And I also discovering that having a community of people that understand how my brain works, what I struggle with, that can be life-changing. I've never felt that I belonged before. I would encourage anyone who questions why am I not doing better to join this group. I just think it's great. And I joined because I knew it would be a good investment that would pay itself back several times over, knowing that it would change the trajectory of my life. Some of my big takeaways were the one thing, focusing on one thing to guide your day, your week, your months, etc. It works at every level. And the why, the why matters so much. Through doing this group, I have learned so much more about myself than I could have ever imagined. I realized that I'm not doomed to repeat past mistakes. I discovered that I have the power to choose differently now. I've changed by becoming more aware of my time and my tendencies, and I've learned I can do hard things. Registration starts today for our summer coaching and accountability groups. We're only doing two sections this summer, so these groups will fill fast. So if you're ready to do this, if you've been thinking about joining for months or even years, schedule your registration interview today. Registration interviews are on Tuesdays and Thursdays only, now to the end of May. To learn more and to schedule your call with me, go to coachingrewired.com. That's coachingrewired.com. 
Next week in your podcast feed will be our live Q&A from last month. And the feedback we've gotten from people who attended was that it was one of our best Q&As in some time. Brendan and Mahan and I go head to head a couple times. It turns out we don't agree on everything. You can join us live next week, Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 Eastern. We do this every second Tuesday of the month. Same place, same time. To register, go to ADHDrewired.com slash events. That's ADHDrewired.com slash events. Welcome back to another episode of ADHD Rewired. Today's guest is Marcel Close. Marcel has always lived with ADHD and complex PTSD her whole life, but she wasn't diagnosed until her early 30s. Since then, Marcel has experienced treatment, healing, acceptance, setbacks, and self-awareness. Marcel has attended college many times, held many jobs, and has lived in more cities than she can count. Marcel's story illuminates the parallels parallels between PTSD and ADHD, what it's like living with both conditions, and how these disorders can contribute to a cycle of family violence. She dreams of a career as a freelance writer and a visual artist. She also works with uh, a coalition for anti-violence. She's done work around the death penalty and also works at the speaker speakers bureau to help people tell their story. Marcel, welcome to ADHD Rewired. Thank you. Did I get your name and everything right? Yes, you did. Okay. Which is remarkable. I always had that fear that I botched somebody's name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People rarely get my name right. I've been called everything from Marcella to Melissa. So the, the phonetic spelling that I ask for when you uh, when you schedule the uh, the interview, it helps. Yeah, good. <laughs> All right. So, um, where where do you want to start uh, with? Do you want to share kind of your backstory and you had ADHD your whole life? Have, have you known you had ADHD your whole life? No, I um, I think this was considered pretty typical for girls in the eighties, seventies, and eighties. That I was the daydreamer at the back of class. Mm-hmm. Was always doodling. Um, I frequently got in trouble for writing on my desk. Um, and so, you know, it, but I had really good grades and I was well-behaved. And so it wasn't, um, people didn't really, teachers didn't really think of that as a problem for me, but it was in, it was around second or third grade that I started getting uh, the comment on my report cards, not working to full potential. And so I went from being pulled out of class for enrichment to, not working to my full potential. And, you know, the focus was very much that it was my fault. And there are two things that could have been contributing to that. One is ADHD. And that's what I initially sought a diagnosis for in my 30s. Um, The other is trauma related to um, violence at home and neglect. And um, so I don't know which was uh, more of a culprit there. I suspect it was a combination of both. Um, and, and in my family, there was very much a sense that, which is common in families with violence, that we don't need outside help. Um, the it's, you know, we don't want anybody to know what's going on inside the house. And 
there was also a stigma about not having learning disabilities, but being diagnosed with them because then you could be pigeonholed. So if you do have a problem, we don't want to tell anybody about it. So we don't want to diagnose this because then people will know. Um, and that was, is my brother had dyslexia and it was a long time before he got a diagnosis. And it was just because he didn't know how to read. He got to fourth grade without knowing how to read. So there was a certain stigma around that. Um, and even then my mom didn't want a diagnosis. She just wanted to treat it like it was dyslexia and assume that she was right. So, and then, you know, it was high school was really hard for me. There were a lot of, a lot of things that are common of people who have grown up with repeated trauma throughout their childhood. And I did well in school. I was able to get by in school. Um, something that's probably more ADHD is the classes that I liked. I did really, really, really well in, mm -hmm. and nobody could understand why. The, I remember getting the ninth grade history award, and that's when they're still checking your notebooks, and my teacher picking up my binder by the spine, and like everything uh. fell out. And everything was only maybe five pieces of paper because I didn't know where any of the rest of them were. <laughs> and he said, how do you do this? Like, I, I don't understand how you have a 98 in this class. <laughs> and it was because it fascinated me. Mm. Um, and the only places where I would lose grades is I couldn't remember the exact dates of things. <laughs> but in terms of the analysis of history, putting that puzzle together, I loved. And, you know, but classes that I didn't care about, like physics, I did horribly in, mm. but could do just enough to pass. And again, that was often equated with laziness or not caring. So not caring. Right. And so that was in my last year of high school. I said they had a program called co-op, which was like a work you spent four days on the job in a field that you're interested in and one day in school. Um, and I went in and I said, look, to the guidance counselor, I said, look, we have two options. I'm going to drop out or you get me into this program mm. <laughs> and uh, because it was too late technically for me to apply to be in it. And they got me into it. And uh, that's the only reason I graduated high school. What was the, the catalyst for you being at that point of saying that I'm either going to drop out or get me into this program? Um, I think it was, there was the struggle with not being able to do the things I knew I was capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And I was in a, I had very little family support. I had no family support um, in terms of anything beyond absolute basic necessities. So there was, um, I was very much in survival mode by high school mm -hmm. and the having to balance all of that. And I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't know how to do it. I knew I wasn't stupid. I knew I was, capable of taking care of myself. And then I had, because of the trauma, I had lots of reasons for that to be my focus and managing triggers in some ways is, I mean, it's really hard, but it gave my ADHD brain a place that I could thrive. Say more about that. So you're, you're trying to manage triggers and. Yeah. And um, I tend to, have aha moments while I'm talking. So this one's kind of new for me okay. <laughs> just in this moment. Um, but the um, I've always managed crisis really well. That's mm -hmm. always been, um, and I chose jobs where I managed crisis, crises. So 
I like solving puzzles. I, you know, I think this is the ADHD part of my brain. I like solving puzzles and managing crises, as I understand it, is often something that ADHD brains enjoy doing. So through the drama of my high school years, I've thought that the ADHD probably helped me survive in a lot of ways. Mm. And I'm just now thinking in this moment that that's one of the ways that it helped me um, not collapse because of the trauma part of my brain that was trying to take care of me. Um, They balanced each other, I think, kind of nicely now that I think about it. And uh, so I was able to think of things like, look, I know I don't want to drop out of school. That would be really bad and able to figure out this would be a better option for me. And so I think that those were, those were the catalyst. Um, the other thing is that I had, um, I was supposed to be on track for going to university um, and you know, doing those classes. I knew my family didn't have the money to send me to school. There was no point in putting too much energy into that. And this program, so it wasn't gonna be in the way of me getting into college. Yeah, so I think those were the the catalysts there. Do you uh, do you feel comfortable at all kind of sharing what growing up uh, in your home was like? Yeah, the um, both of my parents, I suspect, also suffered from PTSD. Wouldn't surprise me if they also suffered from ADHD. I lived with ADHD. The um, it was I was it was very isolating. Um, I was very much on my own from pretty much birth. The I've described this a few times that it's like I was already the adult in the house the day I was born. Mm. Um, mm. My mother told me several times that she was telling me about, she was unloading all of her problems on me in utero. So I, um, mm. you know, I, I was the, the adult. My dad had a very childlike temper. You know, it was um, temper tantrum type temper when things weren't going his way. And um, so once I was a mother, I could see, oh, yeah. So was it <laughs> like you felt like... Temper tantrum looks like my dad. Was Pardon. it like you were always having to kind of walk on eggshells at home? I was walking on eggshells. I was also responsible for making sure other people's lives went smoothly. Mm. Um, in part, such a heavy burden to carry. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And... Yeah, because both of my parents were very self-centered. And so it was a, um, yeah, making sure that their lives went smoothly enough. So, yeah, it is a burden. Yeah. And so was the, the, um, was the trauma, was it more the, sort of that, that emotional, the emotional abuse? Is it, it's a term that I learned uh, about a year or two ago. Um, it refer, it's called emotional incest, right? Where it's, mm. where it, you know, you kind of think about that it's when a parent is using a child to meet their emotional needs. Um, I mean, that's, it gives you that kind of creepy, uncomfortable feeling, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. My mother had no boundaries and no concept of what was appropriate conversation. Um, and similar, but different with my father. I spent more time with my mother. Um, but so there wasn't so much the meeting his emotional needs, um, but it, that was more making sure that if we could avoid his temper and living with, you know, the, there was less physical abuse um, than 
I probably kind of feel because my dad was very good at making sure we knew what he was capable of so mm. that he never had to. Uh, so there was always this kind of intimidating presence that was under the guise of humor. And um, so that, you know, well, I wouldn't really do it, you know, but the, um, I, I grew up in Canada. The hockey was a big part of our family and, you know, like pretending to body check us against a wall or, you know, and when you're an eight-year-old little girl, <laughs> you know, that's, that's intimidating. That has you to be terrifying. That. Yeah. Um, and, but it was very much painted as a, um, as humor, you know, like it, he was just joking around. Mm. But so as an adult, I look back and I'm like, no, that was somewhere in his brain that was strategic. So at what point did you realize like, this is not, this is not normal. This is not healthy. Um, I think I always kind of knew that it wasn't healthy, but the messages that I got, like my mother routinely told me through middle school and high school of all your friends, you're the least likely to end up in therapy. <laughs> and I, I have what? no idea why she believed of that. All your friends, you're the but, least likely to end up in therapy. Was that uh, a yeah, jab she, at your friends or was that like, a, what was that? A, I, it was, well, that was usually said in conjunction with, we broke the cycle. My mother, you know, and it was somewhat of a thou dost protest too much. She and my dad rather did better than their parents in many ways, I'm sure. Um, I hope. But the bar was pretty low. And I think she needed to believe that she had broken the cycle, that what was going on wasn't she wasn't hurting us emotionally. Um, and, and so there was this stigma around therapy. So I didn't, and then through the eighties, dysfunctional was a buzzword. I knew we were dysfunctional. I didn't fully appreciate what that meant until um, I got older. When I did finally go to college, one of the times um, I was in a doctor's office at the school and um, I was, I'd made the appointment because I was experiencing eating disorder issues. And, and I now train people not to do this, but when I told parts of my story, she like would gasp and was horrified and um, which is not supportive when you're the person on the other end of the, mm. across the table from the professional who's gasping. <laughs> um, she, uh, that was kind of the first time that I realized, you know, just, how damaging it was possibly. And, but part of surviving is putting that to the back of your head. Cause if you think about that too much, you might fall apart. And that was always a big fear of mine that, and still is one of the things I still struggle with. My therapist insists that I could take down a book about my, a section of my life and open it up and work with it a bit and close the book and put it back on the shelf. And I still don't, I believe things will fly out and that they will be flying around the room and I'll never be able to put them back. <laughs> uh, so, um, so like, but that is, you know, a real fear of mine. So anytime there were little indications that it was much worse than I understood, I, I pushed it to the back of my mind. Um, and probably one of the starkest versions of that is when I did finally get diagnosed. Um, so I, I ended up, I did with, really with well ADHD? with or, ADHD. Okay. Yeah. Um, I did really well through my twenties. i was able to start a really good, not well-paying, but good career as an emergency vet tech. 
<laughs> that again, I, it's managing crises. I didn't have to be around people. <laughs> um, I'd considered being a veterinarian. And I think part of me knew that the school, I was not, I didn't have the school, the skills to get through school, but mm-hmm. also mostly they deal with people and money. And I wanted nothing to do with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, and when you work in emergency vet medicine, it's much more like being a nurse. You, know, you have much more um, authority and control and stuff over what's, you know, patient management and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, so I did okay. And it was after my kids were born that um, I decided to get a diagnosis. It was in the early 2000s. It was around the time that Delivered from Distraction came out. Mm-hmm. And so I was at home with two little kids. So that book tour was on all the daytime television. And so they were talking about adult ADHD and in conjunction a lot about kids. And I could see some characteristics in my daughter who um, she had some of that daredevil stuff. And um, one time I woke up cause I worked second shift at the vet school. I, um, I woke up and she was trying to set up a, from a nap and she was trying to set up a tightrope with my yarn across the room and was so angry that it wouldn't stay tight enough to work <laughs> with yarn with the with yarn yeah so um so there were a few of those things and i thought well she was only two at the time two and a half and i thought well why don't i get a diagnosis why don't we go and see if i have it so that when she's older we know that there's a genetic predisposition um, so like much of my therapy and stuff, it was about being a better mom for my kids. So I, um, w- I went and had a, a comprehensive, it felt like it took all day. I don't remember if it was all day and with an interview and then a bunch of things on a computer. And I actually came back with much higher tests. I think it was something like 60% I have it here, but 60% suggestion that I had um, PTSD. And the only reason they didn't say for sure that I did was because I didn't claim to be numb, to experience numbness. And you say you didn't claim. Is right. That- well, yeah. Cause I didn't feel numb. Like when you sit on your foot for too long, <laughs> you know, it seemed like, a, you know, I, I don't think that I would have understood what that meant. Yeah. Like I was being too, I think I was being too literal and they did, you know, put in parenthesis or like highlight the fact that I said I didn't claim to have felt numb and but I was it was probably 20% more than I had PTSD but that Mm -hmm. I definitely had ADHD and just to a lesser extent I all but forgot I pretty much did forget that they'd mentioned PTSD and because I couldn't handle that you know that was there's a medication for ADHD and I was not ready to acknowledge all everything that was wrong and at this point, I was in a, um, a marriage that was emotionally abusive, and I had two small children. And through you know my teens and early 20s, I said I wasn't going to have kids because the odds were I was going to screw them up, and I wasn't doing that to anybody else. So the universe gave me twins and thought that we would do this differently. And, um, and that was, I, once I knew I was pregnant, I knew I absolutely wanted them. And that I was not going to do to them what happened to me. So I did a lot of that, that work. And, um, but it was, again, very much focused on being a better parent. But what were some of those thoughts you had when you first learned that you were having twins? 
But I learned it. I actually was pretty sure that I knew before I found out. Um, and I was teasing their dad. And he's like, no, no. He said, it's really rare. And I started listing off all the pairs of twins that we knew, <laughs> including the person I was working for at the time, um, including the two of his groomsmen who were twins that were in our wedding. And like, I just started listing off all of these twins that we knew. And um, his sister also has twins. And so I was he's like, nope, nope, it can't be. And when we went for the ultrasound, I'm like, I knew it. I told you. <laughs> um, so I was, again, I was really excited. And there was, um, I couldn't explain it because I, part of my brain was telling me I should be terrified. And it's been a wonderful, I mean, I just, I've probably the one thing that I would say is my biggest accomplishment is that I've helped them navigate life. Mm. And um, the, That's where huge. I've been. Thank you. It, it, yeah, it is, especially because I had to help them navigate some really horrible things that I blamed myself for them having to navigate and um, have kind of come out of that too and been more trying to be more compassionate with myself and understand that that um, in many ways I was groomed to end up in a relationship that was um, had an emotional abuse component to it. Are you still in this relationship? No, we left when the kids were in first grade, finishing up first grade. And um, they do have a relationship with their dad. And um, I'm pretty proud of that too, because I've been, you know, it takes a lot of work to help make that happen in mm -hmm. this situation. Um, but they've, um, they're strong and they're resilient. And, you know, they know who their dad is. And, you know, there's no that walking that fine line between not making excuses and hiding um, and, you know, still um, he's still their dad. And that's an important relationship to have if you can continue to have it, you know, regardless of how imperfect the person might be. So, um, yeah, but that was not leaving was not easy. And I think that's one of the times when my. ADHD was the biggest hindrance because um, there's not enough energy around. Um, there was enough energy to handle all of it. The triggers, the, um, the two young kids, the, and trying to hold a job. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of what I'm qualified for is um, administrative work, which is not particularly ADHD friendly. <laughs> And then you add being in the middle of a um, major traumatic crisis and <laughs> it's, um, it gets a little overwhelming. So that, um, but again, at that point, I wasn't thinking of it in terms of trauma. I was thinking of it in terms of ADHD and that I had medication. Um, you know, a lot of what I did, and I've actually gone back and looked at the whole report from um, the clinic that I, where I had my assessment and they actually recommended a whole lot of stuff in addition to medication, <laughs> but what I took away with medication and, um, and didn't follow up on all the other stuff, 
Um, of course, they gave somebody with ADHD a whole long report. I was going to say, it's like, you know, they, they on those long reports at the last page of those reports, they have like the summary that's like a one page thing. They should put that right. on the front. Shouldn't they? And <laughs> it should start with three books because <laughs> I'm not going to read those books. <laughs> um, I'll buy them. Right. And they'll sit on my shelf. Yeah. Um, and if it was a memoir of somebody that had ADHD, I'd read that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so. Have you ever read Chasing were... Kites? I, I have not. Uh, it's Tom Nardone. Uh, it's a book he wrote. Uh, really, really good memoir. Okay. okay. Thank you. And I was still in a lot of ways before I started working with um, um, survivors of violent crime that. Um, I didn't like the word victim and I didn't like the word survivor because both implied that I allowed something to happen to myself. Mm. And it was when I started working with um, survivors of violent crime, particularly family members of people who'd been murdered and listened to them and the reasons that they embraced those terms and, um, and started to see some of myself and there was enough distance between what happened with them and what happened with me that I was able to do some processing of my own while supporting them. And these were people that were, you know, usually a few years, if not several years past when the, um, the murder had happened. So they'd done some healing and I, um, and it was during that time that I started doing trauma work and most of it was in the trauma work for yourself, for myself. Yeah. And so most of that therapy was identifying what was going on within myself and strategies. Um, Can you walk us through that, like that process that you're describing now, they're identifying and. Yeah. So if something triggers me and, you know, it, when you don't have that kind of self-awareness yet, all you know is you get that sense of fight or flight that, um, I've got to, I got to get out of here or I've got to do nothing. Sometimes it's a freeze, um, and completely withdrawn to myself and just kind of let it pass. Um, but you don't know why you're doing that. So you feel kind of crazy for lack of a better word. And which I'm not allowed to use. My husband's a mental health professional. He hates the word. <laughs> so <laughs> I try not to use it, but sometimes it's in there. Um, so anyway, the, when you, start to identify that so you can feel you feel this within your body and you know for me it's um sometimes i'll feel my heart rate pick up mostly it's something in my gut that i just kind of feel is something's not right Mm -hmm. and and i can feel kind of tension building from there so identifying that and then sort of taking a quick assessment of your surroundings what could be causing it and Eventually, I got to the point where I could, in certain circumstances, say, this is reminding me of Mm. this time when blank. Um, That's more common if it's reminding me of something from my adulthood. Um, I have a lot of memory gaps in my childhood. but And isn't that really common with trauma? Yeah, that's very common with trauma. And it's it's strange because there are some things that I remember so vividly. And then Mm. it'll seem like there's a year that I can't really account for. And one of the lovely things about my trauma therapist was she told me, you don't have to remember it. You have to remember the feelings, but you don't have to remember what happened. Mm. And that day I, I just fell in love with her. I'm like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> we 
we'll work together forever. Because um, it sounds like that, you really didn't want to go back to those specifics. Yeah, I don't think I want to know mm. what I've forgotten because I figure there's a reason I've forgotten it. And um, I don't really necessarily want to feel the feelings either, but that is um, that feels more manageable because I have learned to you know sort of identify, okay, this is a trigger. If I can figure out if it comes to me quickly, you know, it's triggering this feeling. And a good example is something, you know, and it's something that can happen just because, but there's something about a tall man standing between me and a door, you know, somebody who's at least as tall, if not taller than me. And, you know, I mean, that just, it can happen because somebody walked in the room Mm -hmm. and depending on where I am, that can bother me. So having that, once I identify that, having that conversation with myself, um, which comes easily to people with ADHD and I can have this back and forth with, (laughs) you know, um, and saying, you know, it's acknowledging that there's a benefit to this part of me that's saying, get the hell out or, you know, there's a problem saying, you know, you took care of me, you protected me and I appreciate that. And this isn't then. And I got this. Mm. We're good. Mm. That's so important. Um, and, and it's, it takes a long time to get mm-hmm. to that. And there are still times when um, it'll sneak past me. You know, I, if I'm not expecting to be triggered and it happens. Um, and then having some strategies, if I can go for a walk and try and do some things to manage the anxiety um, before. And if those things don't work, then I take something to help me. Because I have learned that if I don't, take something if i let it get to the point then medication won't help with the anxiety as much and i can slide into a more dissociative um numbing out space um another thing that i've learned through the trauma work is intentional numbing you know that it's okay to numb out as long as you know that that's what you're doing and you give yourself some space. What, what do you see as the difference between self-care and numbing? Well, yeah, I, self-care is when um, you're, you know you need a break and you're giving yourself that break. Mm-hmm. And so it's not completely numbing out because you're not, because you're aware of what's going on. But I will give myself permission to you know, binge watch TV for a little bit or because I need to turn the rest mm-hmm. of the world out. How, and how, how does it make you feel afterwards? Um, uh, if I've done it intentionally, then it is a, um, it helps me re-energize. Okay. And I would call yes. that self-care. That's yeah. Right. Numbing is when we're engaged. It, it, you know, it could be, you can the same, you know, same person can binge on a whole series on Netflix and that could be numbing. Or it could be self-care. I think that the difference is afterwards, like what's your self-talk? How are you feeling afterwards? Like how did that re-energize you or did that, did that drain you even more, which then leads often to, to more numbing. Right. Um, and for me, I think the key is that sort of intentional, I'm going to allow myself to do this for a period of time and have a, um, an end time. And if that end time, I don't feel like stopping that there's, a little conversation with myself that it's not just an automatic, you know, Netflix has said, are you still watching? And I've clicked yes, just because, you know, without thinking about it. Um, 
and yeah, I guess that's all I have to say. About <laughs> okay. All right. Why don't we actually take this, uh, I think we're at a good moment to take a, a quick break here. Um, when, when we come back, I want to uh, talk about trigger warnings. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. And we will be right back. Did you know you could support this podcast by leaving a rating and review on iTunes? It's just one way that you can let me know that you value what I'm doing. And it also helps other people find this podcast because of the way the algorithms work with Apple Podcasts. Support also comes from our patrons over at patreon.com slash ADHD Rewired. Show your support for everything we're doing. Help me hire help so I'm not working till 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Help replenish our coaching group scholarship fund and get cool perks like monthly invites to exclusive Patreon events. You can also help us hit 100 patrons. We're almost there. If you count on new episodes showing up every week, then I hope I can count on you to show your support if you can. Go to patreon.com slash ADHD Rewired to become a monthly supporter. Any amount is awesome. That's patreon.com slash ADHD Rewired. And thanks. Do you want to finally learn how to actually prioritize things in your day and actually get your priorities completed? Join us this summer for our 13th season of our coaching and accountability groups. Registration starts today and ends at the end of May. Go to coachingrewired.com to learn more and to schedule your registration interview. That's coachingrewired.com. And we are back with Marcel Close. Did I get it right two times in a row? You did two times Good. in a row. Like every time I'm like, oh my God, getting it right. It's like, you know, it's, it's my own, I guess, uh, uh, trauma of constantly botching people's names and feeling bad about it. So I, well, I have a little story that might help. Please when do. I, cause I grew up in Canada and, um, worked in Toronto in emergency vet medicine and is a very multicultural environment. Mm -hmm. So I got in the habit of just asking everyone on the phone to spell their last name or first name, just automatically asking them to spell it because I knew I was going to not pronounce it properly. I was not going to spell it properly. And then one day I did it and the person's name was Smith because I just did it automatically. <laughs> and they told me, blah, 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 my name is da, 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 Smith. And I said, and can you spell that? And they, there was this pause and S <laughs> and it took me a couple letters. I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, can, couldn't Smith sometimes have a, like an E at the end? I suppose. And sometimes it's with a Y, but then they usually pronounce it differently. But yeah, so I, yeah. Or they might say Smith with a Y or Smith with an E. Yeah. It's okay. It's, it's something I would do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, let's talk about trigger warnings. Cause I think this is something that we've been seeing more and more, um, you know, especially on social media, we, we even see it on, um, uh, I guess on college campuses that, uh, curriculum is being you know, modified, uh, because of, of, you know, what we're referring to as trigger warnings. And I have a lot of mixed thoughts about this. So I'd like to, to, uh, for you to kind of share, um, maybe with us a little bit about maybe some of your triggers, if you're comfortable with that. And then if we can have a more broader conversation around, around the idea of triggers. Okay. Um, I think 
they, um, there are, you know, definitely some things that trigger me. Um, and if we're thinking specifically in terms of media, I mean, honestly, right now, the person who is in office has been a trigger for me since he announced he was running. You're not the only one. Um, yeah. And there's been a number of opinion pieces and editorials and um, long articles about that. Um, and so, you know, I mean, there's that, but then there's also been a lot of sexual violence in the media. Um, and so, you know, things like the, um, was it Stanford? When that was in the media a lot, I was just not on social media and I've largely not been on social media since um, the last presidential election. And so in that case, it's, it's images can be a trigger and there's only so much that you can, that other people can do. You know, I mean, the media needs to present what's going on in the news and mm -hmm. to be as new, newsworthy. Um, so for me, that's something that I try and regulate for myself as much as possible. The um, things that are more like text, um, I, I'm part of a complex PTSD support type group on, on Facebook and um, which is the place where you would expect trigger warnings and for people to be really good about how they present them. And so one of the things that bothers me is if there's a trigger warning, if it just says trigger warning, then I don't know if it's something that will trigger me or not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help me. Um, but also if it says trigger warning and then starts straight into the potentially difficult mm -hmm. content and there's no space to allow you to remove yourself um, from that risk, that's a problem. Um, and I think that that's something that's happening a lot. It's become a catchphrase. People will say trigger warning and then start talking right away. Um, there was a really good example of how to do a trigger warning on, say, radio media. It was NPR, and it was after the, um, the Las Vegas shooting. Mm -hmm. And they warn, you know, we're about to play this audio. There will be sounds of gunshots and people who were at the scene. So if you don't want to listen to that, we're going to give you a period of time. And then the host chatted for maybe 30 to between 30 and 60 seconds to give people a chance to get to the radio and turn it off, mm -hmm. um, which I think is important. The, um, I think in terms of changing curriculums and those sorts of things, um, I've not personally had to deal with it, but I have for my son. And the way that we dealt with it was, um, it was in middle school when they first start doing a lot of work on self-reflection and comparing literature, um, you know, against their own lives and how it's, um, it connects with them personally. And there were a bunch of short stories and they needed to select a certain number of them. And he had this real block. He couldn't do the project. And eventually, um, you know, he was talking to me more and I figured out, well, that's because of your options. There's one of them that doesn't trigger a negative thing from your childhood. You know, there was a story about a father with a temper. There was a story about a family who was on food stamps. There was um, a number of things. And, you know, so in that case, we went and we talked to his teacher and explained it. And she came up with some different stories for him. The whole class's curriculum wasn't changed. He was still doing the work that was required. We just tweaked it so that he could do it, um, which is what I think 
I would want for my kids in college too, for them to feel empowered to say, you know, this particular subject matter is difficult for me. I still want to do the work. Can you work with me? Mm. So it's about self-advocacy and kind of owning, owning that the struggle is, uh, it's, it's struggle is real struggle is yours. Um, but at the same time to that, it, I mean, it would be like, you know, if, if, because having ADHD, if it was hard to, for us to get our bills on time, uh, you know, for us to say, you know, we should just extend everybody's due date, the deadlines. Um, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, right. Or expecting the, the, in a workplace, the boss to accommodate, uh, uh, us and not have us do the same amount of work for the same pay. Like it's our challenge. We have to, you know, whatever our challenge is, it is all, also our responsibility to, to own that challenge, um, in order mm-hmm. to, to, you know, to navigate in the world. Right. And, and I think the, you know, for example, it was probably really good for other kids to have the collection of stories because it helped them build empathy mm-hmm. that, you know, there are families that go through this. Um, and so I think it's more, it, for me, it would be more important about building the kind of culture where, you know, we are part of a community where we can say, look, everyone can say, look, this is what I need in order to be the best me. Mm-hmm. And that it's okay to accommodate that. And that it doesn't mean that it's cheating, that it means that your skill set is better over here and someone else's skill set is good here. It, um, Whereas if we just change everything, you know, if we stop teaching challenging things, um, you know, we run the risk of not exposing people to important issues. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a difference between being triggered and being uncomfortable. Talk about that. because I think that's a really important distinction. But for example, where I'm working now, we're doing a lot of equity work and, you know, really looking at the, especially around race. And to try and make a really, truly equitable workplace, we have a lot of conversations that are uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. um, especially for white people. Um, And while it may trigger, you know, quote unquote, trigger certain feelings of guilt or, well, guilt's the one that comes to mind the most, or anger or whatever, just because you are feeling an emotion that's making you uncomfortable that's very different than uh, me seeing a man standing in the doorway or hearing somebody use a tone and language choice that takes me back to a place that was unsafe. It's very different than I'm feeling really horrible about this and I don't know what to do. Those are very legitimate feelings and they're feelings that should be acknowledged and worked through. And you can't acknowledge and work through it if you don't stay in that discomfort, as opposed to somebody in, you know, maybe while we're doing this work, somebody who is a person of color, we're having these conversations that are uncomfortable for us. They say, I need this to stop now because this is too much like, and it's, it's triggering a trauma response as opposed to triggering discomfort. Does that make sense? I mean, I think it's, I think it's really nuanced. Um, And I think that, that, it's, you know, that context always matters. Um, you know, so it's, 
I guess, you know, so I have, and, and I'm of two minds, uh, I think around this, you know, I, I want to be empathetic and sensitive towards, you know, all people's needs. And at the same time, I don't also want to feel like I have to always walk on eggshells about the, you know, everything that I say when, right. when, if, if, you know, um, and I'll share an example. And I think I shared this with you when we first talked, I had, uh, uh, I mentioned Tom Nardone earlier. He's one of my uh, dear friends. And um, I had him on the show. Uh, the last time I had him on the show, um, he he uh, covered for me. I, I had a scheduling snafu and I needed to have a guest because I didn't have anybody else lined up for for the next week. So <laughs> Tom was one of my buddies. Like it's, you know, so it's it's not just, and, and people who've been listening to the podcast for a while know that, right? And so I... Um, used a an expression that I really didn't even think twice of. It was just my, you know, he's my friend. Um and I got a, a an email from a listener um uh putting in a subject line the the phrase that I that I had said and um so I'm like highly disappointed. All right. So you know I, I had when when this person brought it to my attention, I was like, yeah, probably wasn't the best choice of words like you know it was um because you know, i think when when i'm doing the podcast i like to think about this as i'm having a conversation with the person that's you know uh, on on the 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 screen uh that i'm talking with and um and yes i know that it's going to be cons- you know uh publicly consumed but so i was in, of, of two minds but i i felt bad that that I, that there was a listener that was really um um I was hurt and triggered by it, right? So I, I posted on Facebook uh, in, in our Facebook community. Um, I basically shared what happened and that I uh, apologized for, um, you know, kind of using some insensitive language. Um, and there were some people that voiced sort of their upset about me apologizing about that. And saying like you know we can't like water down and 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 um, sterilize all of our conversations, and I also kind of agree with that too, right? So right. it's like I, I don't know where that line is. For me, I think the line is that it's safe for someone to say that that phrase, and uh, and you did mention it when we talked before, and I can see how that uh, that particular phrase could be a trigger from a, an abusive relationship mm-hmm. or um, you know, sexual violence or something like that. I can get that. So for me, I think the line is that it was safe for this person to say, this triggered me and I wish you hadn't said it. Um, and it's safe for you to say, I'm sorry, it was probably, a, it was a poor choice of words. I can see how that might trigger somebody who's experienced something. And you know, I will think about that in the future. And I think that that's where it ends. You know, I think then that's, that's where it ends. They've, um, because, you know, I don't think you need to go and edit it out or jump through hoops. For me, you know, to me personally, it, um, I think the way that you handled it was the best way to handle it. And that's how we, keep from having to sterilize everything as if it is an open and safe community to be able to say, 
you know, hey, when you use this, it can make people feel blah, blah, blah. Or, um, you know, just so you know, for future, you know, like I'm, I grew up in Canada and I now live in the South. So I have learned constantly that this is racially charged or that in that, like I, because I didn't grow up knowing the context. Mm. Um, so I'm always apologizing, (laughs) (laughs) um, and trying to learn from that. And, you know, so I think that it, um, I think if you had fallen all over yourself and said that you were like devastated and you'll, you know, be policing everything you say before you'll have it all vetted before it goes online or something. Right. I think that's going way too, you know, that, that is approaching the sanitizing everything. Right. And, you know, and this person did a request that I, that I edited it from the podcast and I didn't. Um, but I, 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 I created, I, what I thought was the best, best thing to do was to, to create an open dialogue around this. Um, you know, and, um, you know, cause it's, it's, this is, it's, it's, you know, I don't, you know, I, on my podcast, there's an explicit warning, whether, whether there's, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, difficult topics or language or not. So I just want, you know, right. I don't want to like to think that I forgot to mark something. So I just kind of as a blanket, it's right. explicit. Right. Right. And so this is a show for adults. Right. And, yeah. you know, and I think too, like, and one of my, I guess, um, my, my thoughts around this is if things that are, if day to day things are triggering somebody, right. And, and the, the typical public discourse, this is a person that needs help. Right? right. And instead of putting so much effort into trying to, to censor everybody else, like find a really good therapist and, right. and, you know, get the support because it's, there's no, it to, I mean, to have to live life, like being fearful around every corner that somewhere there's going to be a trigger that's going to jump out at you. And I mean, that's, that's awful. Right. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, cause I've been in periods where I did feel like that. Um, it's, it's an awful place to be and it's, it's not something you should navigate alone or should have to navigate alone. And if, for example, you had edited it out and you'd apologized to them, but not made a public apology or then there wouldn't have been any conversation because there are some, you know, phrases that um, are such a part of our culture that people don't know how they perpetuate, um, you know, racism or sexism or, um, and we need to have conversations. And so I think it was, um, and it's also possible that for that individual naming it was a step in their therapy, Mm. you know, for them personally, whether it was like an assignment from their therapist or not, it was, um, you know, it helped them move forward. And that's why I think having this open, safe communication is so important. Um, and then there are the people that have no idea why this could be problematic. They were provided a space to learn. So I'm going to ask you this. Um, so I am sure right now there are listeners are, who are just like, the curiosity is killing them. They're like, what, what did you say? What? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back on Facebook and find it. <laughs> go ahead. It's up to you. So to, to follow, to follow that, like, 
let me give you a trigger warning. Um, or say, if you want to find out, go back to episode, I think it was 202, but I'm not 100% sure if that was the episode. No, so I, I, I'm i just going to share it. So if you want to uh, skip forward about 30 seconds, uh, if you don't want to hear it, um, but I'm sure everyone's curiosity, they're not going to be able to help it. Probably, um, yeah. So I, I I said to Tom, thank you for being my sloppy seconds because he was a last he was a last second uh, guest and he's always agreed to right. come on anytime I need a last second guest, right? And I really didn't even when I said it, I really didn't even think about it as like anything to do with any sexual connotation. It was just right. like it was. A, I knew there was sort of a, a crude element to it, but like you know, I'm not like I don't know, I'm not ABC Family here, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and that I think some of the um, it, it, unfortunately some of the crudeness is also a lot of it's associated with some really harmful things yeah. that have happened with, to people and and does you know perpetuate because you know and that's one of the things that makes language so tricky is there's nothing in that phrase that says it's about a man right and isn't um, isn't intent like the intention behind that phrase like. It has to matter for something. Yeah. I think um, the, again, with our equity work that we're doing in the office, the um, intent needs to be acknowledged. Impact needs to be addressed. So it's both because I mean, intent, absolutely. There is a difference between using that term to refer to your wife or to refer to, you know, the, person you ended up with at the bar that night instead of the one that you'd been talking up all night or you know i mean it Mm -hmm. there's a very difference in the intent there than what you were saying obviously and that so that to me is is part of why i think just making it part of an open conversation is the best way to address it as opposed to um dressing you down for using a phrase that um most people i don't think would consider triggering that's you know, oh, and, and, and if for those of you who know Tom, um, I mean, he goes to conferences wearing flannel pajamas. Um, so like, <laughs> so he, he, he would be the first one to tell you he's, he's, you know, sloppy would be something that he would, you know, he would acknowledge right. and he would own, you know? What I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, and so that, you know, context, that's why context and intent are important. And that's why I think conversation is the best. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And, and it may have helped somebody that's in the community know that when they're out with the guys and talking about who they're picking up at the bar to not use that phrase, <laughs> you know, that in that context, it's more problematic. So, you know, right, but even thinking about that, you know, this whole, the whole discussions that we've heard, um, you know, and, and the news about the, the, uh, you know, locker room talk, like, right. and for excusing locker room talk, like the things that, have, that, that are, hard to say president has said um like i would be disgusted if i heard somebody say that the kind of stuff in the locker room like i you know so to me there is a there is a difference between just the the direct just with the word objectation that's not the right form of the word what am i trying to say objectification thank you i knew there was an asian in there somewhere (laughs) um of of, of clearly objectifying someone versus using something in a sort of tongue-in-cheek you know it's kind of a a dirty joke but like you're not saying this in like a a, a braggadocious kind of way right and i mean it's totally a different context 
and um, but led to a conversation that may help people think twice about it in a locker room when objectifying. You know, like that's, yeah, I mean, and I can't imagine there's anything that could even remotely be compared between you and number 45. So <laughs> if anyone gets to be just a number, you know, anyway, and I'm sorry, I'm turning it into a political conversation. It's, it's a, you know, it's, it's not, it's, not, I don't think it's a political conversation. I think it's a, a conversation around, um, like, <laughs> I know that there are many people who are like, really, you got politics. People who listen long enough know I have strong beliefs about this. I don't even think it's about politics. I think it's about humanity. Right. Yes, I would agree. So, um, <laughs> you know, we've gone to the bad place when we started talking about 45. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, so where is, where, where does humor come in when dealing with trauma? Well, for some of us, humor is a huge part. And um, it, speaking of figures and um, people who don't have, I have offended many people who don't have trauma because they don't think I should be laughing at some of the things that I laugh about. <laughs> um, and and if I didn't make jokes about my dysfunctional early family or... Um, jokes like, we put the fun in dysfunctional. Yeah, well, I like to think that they're a little better than that, but, <laughs> you know, the, um, you know, like, just, you know, jokes about that I was essentially, okay, here's one that really bothers people. By rights, my parents should have raised a drug addict. <laughs> and, uh, and there are people are like, oh, I'm like, no, but seriously, like, I was pretty much on my own by 14. Uh, I got to choose who I hung out with. My dad's best friend when I was a kid was a drug dealer, like, you know, <laughs> they should have. And I will say that and laugh and people are horrified. I'm like, but I mean, look, really, I, <laughs> they're lucky they didn't. And, you know, look at me now. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so jokes like, jokes like that, that, um, and I know that there are others that. Well, sort of identifying the absurdity. Yeah. It, and the other thing is that uh, it is kind of a, double-edged sword if you were because that humor helped me it was a survival mechanism so it kept me from really acknowledging how bad things were at certain times in mm. my life when um probably the best survival strategy was actually to get out but um making jokes about it normalized it and um and you need a certain amount of normalizing because if you really you know i mean you could sit down and you could make a list of this is normal and this was me, and then you'd fall apart. I mean, there'd be a breakdown. You, you know, it. Um, I think humor has kept. If you look at all the stand-up comics, humor's kept a lot of us who've experienced trauma in childhood out of you know long-term mental facilities, and mm -hmm. because it helped us um, not fall apart and you know get up every morning. And yeah, it's it's really important, and it it's an important part of my ADHD too. Because if I couldn't make jokes about it and ask my family I do all the time and um and my husband you know he sometimes struggles with it because he knows that I can engage in negative self-talk mm -hmm. so he struggles with finding the line between okay are you making fun of yourself or are you making light of the situation um and that's um yeah so he, and he's he's my second husband he's my healthy husband <laughs> and um he um but he also is help he, he's helpful to be a good um sort of check for me uh, that am I 
am I engaging in negative self-talk? Am I, you know, potentially heading into a depressive period? And um, so that, and he also does a lot of reminding me sort of like you did earlier when um, I was talking about my childhood and you know, being the emotional support from infancy, pointing out how great I've done considering, you know, most people, um, you know, one of the things that he points out a lot is I had no framework for what parenting was supposed to look like, except if my parents did, you know, doing the opposite of whatever um, and how well I've done. And I don't pat myself on the back a lot for a lot of things, but that, that is one of the things that um, teenage years have been harder <laughs> because my parents were mostly absent for my teenage years. So I don't have something to compare to do the opposite of. Um, and that, you know, I, I um, often yeah. hear people say like, well, what, what other choice did I have? And I'm like, and I think, you know, we do have choices. And, um, you know, I think what, one of the things that, um, and, and maybe you relate with this, say this, do you have these moments where you're like, you know, I've been strong, I've been resilient. I wish I haven't had to be this strong and resilient. Yeah. And, and there are times when it's like, I, I wish I didn't have the skills now because I'd like to curl yeah. up in a ball and go to sleep. <laughs> but damn it, I'm resilient. <laughs> I want to break. I want to not be resilient today. But um, yeah, that um, is, you, and you do have a choice. And it became that one of the blessings, one of the many blessings of doing the work, starting with um, the work with homicide survivors was um, that, it, and doing work around the death penalty. So a lot of, the people who I first worked with, uh, victims of violent crime, were the family members of homicide victims who were opposing the death penalty. Mm. And, uh, and there's lots of reasons that it's um, very nuanced sometimes. But I really got to see up close the um, people who made different choices had it worse. So making that choice is harder. But I know so many people, myself included, who had it really hard could have had it harder based on choices that they made as teenagers and young adults. And the, um, so in the anti-death penalty movement, I was one of the less, um, less offender, um, empathetic because I knew so many people that had really damaged childhoods and didn't create, um, you know, didn't offend in the way that, that doesn't mean that they're not sick and don't need help and don't need um, that taken into consideration, just that um, there are choices. Yeah. So. Marcel, thank you so much for, for sharing your, your story and for um, being an advocate for, for many, many people uh, who have uh, gone through trying, trying experiences. Um, and I think the more, the more we share our story, the more we can own it. And, uh, and, and instead of letting that story own us. So um, thank you so much. Is there any kind of, are there a final thought, if, if, especially if a listener is, is, you know, maybe wonders if they, they have PTSD or maybe knows they do, but haven't really wanted to, to haven't done the work uh, on it yet. What would you say to them? Um, I would say that um, I'd say find a therapist and one of the big, um, the big difference for me, because I talked circles around therapists 
um, for years. And they all thought that I was doing really well. And because um, I'm good at faking it. The um, is find a therapist who specializes in trauma, uh, much like finding a therapist who specializes in HD, ADHD is important because it, it's specific and it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, find somebody who specializes in that, especially if you're not sure, because they will be the people who can best um, help you figure out if, if it's something that's not um, PTSD, that it's something else. And the other thing is um, a lot of the, a lot of the focus and much like with ADHD, that it doesn't really exist happens if your trauma is not related to, you know, something violent that happened to you in the last year or so or combat. Um, PTSD exists for car wrecks, for, um, you know, a, anything that happens violently to a person, whether it's a crime or not, um, can create PTSD. So um, remember that, even if someone's telling you you couldn't have it, uh, and talk to somebody who specializes it, in it. If uh, people want to learn more, uh, do you have any uh, resources uh, that you would suggest? Oh, um, yes. And I didn't think to write them down. Well, I also didn't tell you to come with them prepared. So that's, uh, no. that's on me. So what, if you wouldn't mind, if you, uh, if you just send me uh, some links and I can just post them on the show notes page to this episode. Yes. And there's, um, there's some for PTSD. There's also one out of the fog mm-hmm. is one of them. I don't know if it's a .com or .org, but out of the fog also has stuff for people who live with somebody mm. uh, like has have a close friend or relative with ptsd so but i will look up the resources and send them to you so thank you so much thank you all right i've really enjoyed this take care okay bye this is eric tivers thank you for listening and congratulations for making it to the end ADHD Rewired is more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. The website is ADHDrewired.com. You can find summaries and additional resources for each episode. Learn more about the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group, and sign up for my email newsletter to get exclusive content that you won't get anywhere else. It's all at ADHDrewired.com. Support ADHD Rewired and help replenish our coaching group scholarship fund by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash ADHD Rewired. Different levels of support get different perks. You can give just a buck or three or five bucks a month or more. Every little bit helps. And it's an awesome way for you to let me know that you value this show the community, and everything else we do. That's patreon.com slash ADHD Rewired. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Tivers. Subscribe to ADHD Rewired on YouTube to see select interviews and other videos I've made. 
The ADHD Rewired community is now a secret group on Facebook. So that's one less reason to not just be a passive listener, but to be an active member of our community. Fill out our short screening form at our website, ADHDrewired.com. We screen everyone before they join. Podcasts change lives. You can make a difference in someone's life by spreading the word about this podcast. Mention it in your online communities or on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Quora, or wherever you hang out online. And be sure to share it with your friends, your family, your clients, as well as your coaches, therapists, and doctors. If you're a member of Chad or any other ADHD support group, be sure to tell them about this podcast. You can even show them how to download it on their phone or even do it for them. And if you really love this episode, please hit share on your podcast player. I'm only one person and I count on you to help me spread the message. One of the biggest things you really can do to support this podcast and to help other people discover it is to leave an honest rating and review on the Apple Podcast app or on Stitcher or any other podcast app that supports and accepts ratings and reviews. Looking for more ways to listen and learn? Get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at Audible by going to audibletrial.com slash ADHD Rewired. Need some ideas on where to start other than Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, or her six-hour recorded workshop, The Power of Vulnerability? Then I would recommend The One Thing by Gary Keeler. Oh, and if you by any chance know Brene Brown, please let her know how grateful I am for all of her work and what she means to me and the ADHD community, and that she's welcome on my show anytime. And in the one in like 7 billion chance that Brene, you're listening, please come and be a guest. Thanks. This is Eric Tivers reminding you, keep learning, keep growing, and keep connecting. And no matter how hard it all feels, Remember, we can do hard things. Until next time.